Welcome to Digging In, where we provide a front row seat to politics in New Hampshire. I'm State Representative Anita Burroughs. I'm here to bring you the inside track on the people and politics that are shaping our state. Welcome to today's episode of Digging In. I'm Anita Burroughs, and I'm speaking with Tim Egan, a former New Hampshire State Representative and the chair of the New Hampshire Cannabis Association. We'll also be joined by Dr. Riley Kirk, who is a natural product chemist with a PhD in pharmaceutical sciences. Her research has been broadly focused on the use of medicinal plants, particularly cannabis. We will be speaking about the prospect of passage of cannabis legislation in the 2024 New Hampshire House session with these two cannabis warriors. I want to thank Tim Egan and Riley Kirk, Dr. Riley Kirk, for being here today. I'm really excited about this this, uh, podcast. I'm going to start with you, Tim, and I want to know what motivated you to become the cannabis warrior that you are. Well, I think I was motivated by a couple things. You know, I spent a lot of time, 40 years in the TV media business, and I saw, um, you know, people enjoying the product. But as society changed and it became more accepted, I saw that regulation was important because we want to make sure that we have tested products that people can know that they can use comfortably. They can understand the potency. So as much as I'm a business guy and people will think, hey, you want to see an industry that you can make money off of. I think what I want to do is protect people and help people who want to use cannabis as a medicine or use it recreationally. But if it's test, if it's regulated, then it has to go through a lab and it has to be tested. You have to know what the potency is so you understand what you're going to use. And it gives people more of a comfort level. And that's really been what has been driving me in this uh, pro legalization or being a cannabis warrior. It's, it's, that's an important part for me. And uh, tell, tell me, how did you get involved in the movement to legalize cannabis? I'm on, for people who don't know, I serve on Commerce, which is where the cannabis spills land. And Tim has frequently been um, in our sessions when we, when we review the cannabis bill. So, so how did you get involved and what is your role? Well, I had the distinct pleasure uh, for from 2018 to 2022 serving in the House with you, as you know, but it was our dear friend, Representative Rennie Cushing, who's no longer with us, who knew I was involved in the sustainability side of this. I had actually asked him to speak on a panel. And as his bill came up again, and he was hearing from Republicans, libertarians who actually wanted to support pro-cannabis, which he, which he was surprised by, he said, you know, you'd be a good person to sort of engage them because you sort of speak the business world. Can I ask you to chair the Democratic caucus and be the outreach person to the Republicans? And I was more than honored because he's you know, got a great reputation. I was very proud to actually vote for his bill that did away with the death penalty in New Hampshire. And so I became sort of the, the House Cannabis Caucus leader and right. really pushed Republicans and Democrats to start working together. Great. And that's really how I got more actively involved in the legislature. Super. No, that's a, I, I, thank you for that. I'm going to turn to you, um, Riley, um, and you are Dr. Riley Kirk. You are a natural product chemist. And tell us about your areas of uh, expertise and specifically about your work with cannabis, because I actually find this really fascinating. And I, I, I've said to you before, I love your TikTok channel. I just found out you have a podcast on the, the TikTok channel. You got to check it out. There's, there's a wealth of information and also let folks know how they can see you on TikTok. 
Yeah, absolutely. So my expertise is understanding the chemistry of nature and how we can use it as medicine. So for my expertise, it goes beyond just cannabis. It goes to many other medicinal plants and fungi. But I really noticed towards the end of my graduate school career that there was this huge gap in knowledge for cannabis consumers really understanding the plant and how to utilize it safely in a harm reduction forward way. And, you know, using the plant for whatever you're looking for, whether it's just to get high or whether it's to help with your inflammation, whether it's to help with your arthritis, whatever it is, we needed more public education on the plant. So towards uh, when the pandemic was starting, I was working at home for the first time ever. And I was like, I'm going to start making content that's free to anyone who wants to view it that just starts to describe the chemistry and the pharmacology of the cannabis plant, but in a very relaxed uh, manner. So people don't have to like stress like it's a, a school, like a teaching session. It's just, I'm a very open cannabis consumer. I use cannabis every single day. I have for the last decade. And I want to share not just what's in the literature and what's been published, but also my personal experience with the plant and how people can utilize that information for their daily knowledge and kind of just being a liaison, bridging the gap between academia, the industry, and consumers. And that's kind of my whole goal with creating content on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, podcasts, just lowering the barrier of entry to understanding the cannabis plant. Great. Um, you know what we'll do, um, Dr. Kirk, we'll put all the information for folks to get to follow you um, in our show notes. So they'll be able to do that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. We actually just launched a, a nonprofit as well called the Network of Applied Pharmacognosy. And this is to gather information from the cannabis community about real world evidence. What are people actually doing? How can we gather that data? And then how can we inform future studies to include the practical applications of cannabis? So we're not just guessing what these daily use patterns are. So we actually have data to back it up and we can implement that in research. Let me just ask you, because you just said that you're a daily user of cannabis. Are there any long-term um, impact, impacts of doing that on a daily basis? Are there health hazards? I mean, it depends. If you're smoking anything, there are negative effects to mm -hmm. putting anything other than air into your lungs. I think a lot of what we... There's, there's no like well-documented, other than potentially short-term memory um, deficits, but it's really just a matter of weighing the pros and cons of is this plant benefiting your life in a way that encourages, encourages you to keep using it? If you're feeling any negative effects from it, maybe change your use or lower your use. But it really involves just being very in touch with your body and trying to understand where that plant fits into your lifestyle. For me, I, I my career, it really, I need to be very creative and I need to be... Um, yeah, I think creativity is the reason I use it mostly because I don't have any specific medical condition, although I have had like seizures in the past, but it really has to do with my brain state. It has to do with making me happy, increasing my quality of life and making me a more creative scientist. And that's that's the reason why I use cannabis daily. Great. I just I just have to say I desperately need edibles for when I'm in the legislature. So I I'm can't really, imagine. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. But you know, uh, people, folks got in trouble for be drinking beer. So uh, I guess we, we're, we're going to have to or not be able to do that. But I support anyway. the use of edibles in <laughs> yes. legislature. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you, Tim, uh, Governor Sununu passed a bill uh, decriminalizing cannabis in New Hampshire in 2017. So why have we still not passed 
a cannabis bill uh, to legalize recreational cannabis in New Hampshire as we head into 2024. We're the only state in New England that has failed to do so. And there are 20 states in D.C. that have already legalized marijuana. So what's going on here? and What's the problem? I think part to blame is the structure of our legislature. We're a citizen legislature. So the only people that can run for office are folks that are either retired or independently wealthy. So what ends up happening there is you skew older and more conservative. For the longest time, conservatives have been the voice of anti-drugs, you know, the Reagan just say no era. As well, older folks um, are less comfortable and engaged in you know, what, what cannabis can be as a medicine or as a, uh, a stress-relieving uh, recreational device similar to alcohol or other pain relievers. So I think just the structure of our legislature, I think as well, because of our unique structure, right, you're going to get a 400, 400 members of the House of Representatives, you're going to get a good cross-section of the folks of the state. And just like the survey out of UNH said 70 to 80% of the people uh, of the, in the state of New Hampshire were in favor of cannabis. Um, so was the last le- bill that passed the House, 70, 80%, 80, almost 80% of the legislature voted in favor of it. The problem is on the Senate side, you have 24 members mm-hmm. and you have members there who are really well entrenched. So you really have some folks that have some political ground game support. And if they don't like an issue, then they stand there, they stand in that corner and they have right. that support. And I think that's been the difficult side. I think what's been refreshing and what's been part of my goal after leaving the legislature in building out New Hampshire Can was getting a diversity of voices that aren't that older generation. Your fellow and my friend here, fellow board member and guest, Dr. Riley Kirk, is neither old nor old white male, right? But that's an important part is that people from a variety of industries and a variety of walks of life and a variety of, of backgrounds and cultures and, you know, uh, part of the audience that enjoys cannabis is a modern, younger, open-minded audience. And we need more of those voices in the legislature to help pass laws that make our state better, like adult recreational cannabis. And we need more of those folks being outspoken advocates for it. Uh, Riley's a tremendously outspoken advocate. Um, her her science background, her um, very pleasant, enjoyable, entertaining demeanor. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, and I'm a broadcast professional. You know, she, she, she presents it well. So if you can give people facts and give it in a s- smart way, then maybe that's what begins to convince people. You know, the last thing I'll say is, you know, it was it was frustrating for me when I left the legislature after four years, I watched New, ha- New Hampshire try to pass it. And in those same four years, more or less, Massachusetts legalized it. And when I left, it was a $4 billion industry. So we're sitting on the sidelines watching our state money drive off to, uh, I'm a resident of New Hampshire. Have I bought cannabis legal ca- legally in Massachusetts? Yes. In Maine? Yes. In Vermont? Yes. That's what's happening. We're losing that out right. because our legislature is old and slow to react. One, one quick question on that. Um, am, am I part of the older crowd in the, in the legislature, Tim, or do you not want to answer that? <laughs> You're part of the refreshing folks who bring a young perspective, no matter what age you are. And okay. I mean, this seriously, you know, there are, there are members on both sides of the party who might be older folks 
but they understand the impact, the positive impact that cannabis can have as a, I call it an exit way for folks that might be dealing with, with other drugs as opposed to a gateway. I think it gives people an alternative that's legal and not, not addicting. I think it's also folks that are open-minded to, you know, a variety of, of culture and impacts of society, you know, sexual preference, religion, they're open-minded. You, I, I, I love that about you. You're open-minded to a lot of, a lot of things. We've had a lot of, you know, open discussions about legislation, but that's what we need more of. You know, I guess I would say the, the positive news is that there are increasingly more young people in, in the state house. You know, some of them, you know, they work at night or they're realtors and they make it work. So we are seeing more of that, which is very positive. Um, I'm really happy to be seeing that. Can, um, can I add something on the sure. same topic, just sure. kind of going off of what Tim said here about the older retired people typically having the bandwidth to participate in politics. And these are also the same people who have been exposed to significant amounts of propaganda in the 70s and the 80s and with the Reagan administration saying, you know, starting the war on drugs and saying you only abstinence. It's the only way to go forward in life. You know, all drugs are bad. Cannabis is a schedule one drug right next to heroin. There's a high potential for abuse. There's no medical value. We just know that's not true. We have evidence. We have hundreds of scientific papers showing the validity of this medicine. We have two FDA approved drugs from the cannabis plant. So really, it's understanding that we we need to reverse what these people have learned about cannabis and educate them on what we now know about the plant. And I think there's a huge gap in education because we really need these legislators to relearn what they what they know about cannabis. And that takes a lot of personal time that you need to do. There's really no like mandatory lesson on cannabis they need to take. So it's kind of something that they need to do on their own time and also talk to cannabis patients. I think that's probably the cannabis medical patients. I think that's probably the best way to learn about the plant and understand all the value that it provides. Um, because the government, you know, back in the 70s, they really only were pushing very negative things that you would be a non-functioning member of society. You wouldn't be able to, you know, hold a job, hold a relationship, et cetera. And I, I know, you know, hundreds of different people that have incredibly successful careers. They're CSOs or CFOs, whatever it is. And um, I think just continuing that conversation, talking to a diversity of people, talking to people who actually use the plant and putting in that effort to relearn is, is a huge obstacle, I think, in every state that we need to work on. Yeah. And, and, you know, also got to remember that, you know, I went to college in the 70s and most of us smoked pot um, back then. So, you know, some of us are familiar with it. Um, as a legislature, I won't I won't utilize marijuana when I'm in New Hampshire because I don't want it to go on the front page of the, of the paper. But, um, you know, a lot of us did use it and are familiar with it also. So I'm going to just go back. Uh, last year, we had a bill, HB 639, that many people thought was a really good bill. It, it was a result of a bipartisan commission. Um, it seemed to have a lot of what uh, people wanted. Um, we know it failed. The, uh, the Senate, I think Jeb Bradley was a force in the Senate um, to block that, and the governor would not sign it. So um, we're back again. There's been another, we have another commission this year. It seemed to me that this year there were less people in the industry who were last asked to serve on that commission, which which bothers me. Do, do you feel that way, Tim? Oh, I tremendously feel that way. I think yeah. um, if you look at the commission, there's no one from any type of 
operating business in the growing of it, right? Which is legal through the medicinal legalization. There's nobody from the processing side. There's nobody from the retailing side. There's no one from the consulting side of the business that may have worked outside in other states, but are, is a New Hampshire resident that would have a voice. So, you know, it's really hard for me to get behind a pro-business state oriented bill that has no business leaders voicing their opinion. Even at the end of the day, this study commission has New Hampshire CAN and the ATCs listed as will be asked to give advisory comments. Nobody from New Hampshire CAN has been asked to testify yet, and the bill is coming due. It's really frustrating that this is really, I think, a push from some favorite sons in the Senate of the governor to drive a bill that that they want to see happen that would best represent control by the Liquor Commission. And it's a shame. Yeah, I was asked uh, to serve on the commission by um, our Democratic leader, Matt Wilhelm. And I I chose not to, want, for that being somewhat part of the reason I did not want to. I didn't feel it was going to be, a, the commission would be able to put together a bill that was real viable without that input. And I just wanted to add, and I've told you folks about it, I went on a tour not too long ago of a $8 million uh, cannabis facility in Maine, right on the border, on the border. Um, and it was really an eye-opening experience for me because a lot of us think, well, you just grow it, you dry it, and that's all there is to it. But there's a lot more to it. It's 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 not an easy product to cultivate, to care for, um, to um, to do everything that's needed. And uh, I was so glad I went, and I was disappointed. I don't think that people on the commission went to this facility, which I think would have really opened a lot of eyes. And I know that there are two other people on my committee who, after um, I suggested they go, are going to go. But I wish more people from the commission would um, would familiarize themselves with that. Yeah, and I'll say one thing, but I'm really going to ask my my colleague here to to talk about this. Is you know I I teach it from a business point of view at Vermont State University. I teach cannabis business, but to understand the industry, I took all the other courses that we offer, and I took agriculture, and I was blown away how much I don't know and how intensive it is from a scientific agriculture. And you know, yeah. Dr. Riley Kirk is, is, I love having her be part of New Hampshire CAN because she understands that world. You know, Riley, how important, and maybe I'm asking a question for you, Nita, I apologize, no, it's your it. podcast, but like how important, <laughs> how important is it for people to understand the sort of the intricacies of the scientific impact that it can have? You know, the, the, right, there's natural cannabinoids in your body, and I don't even think people understand that. Oh my gosh, the science, it's its so important to understand because we I think people think it's kind of um, false when we say that cannabis can be good for so many different things. You know, we're like, it stimulates your appetite, it helps with inflammation, it helps with sleep, it helps with all these different things. And everyone's like, how is that possible? You know, the, the cannabis industry must be making things up to make it seem like this magical plant. But really, it is magical because of the way it interacts with your body. As Tim's saying, every human, every animal on Earth has this endocannabinoid system. And the, the molecules that the plant makes interact with our system. And that system controls your whole body, almost everything in your body. So for a lot of people with chronic conditions, something in your body is dysregulated and cannabis can help bring regulation to dysregulated systems in your body. So that's incredibly important, but also on the cultivation part that you were just talking about, 
you can grow different plants that produce different levels of these active molecules for whatever people are looking for, whether it's to help with inflammation or to be a good, you know, daytime product that maybe doesn't get you really high, but can still help with your anxiety or help with something else in your body or seizure disorders, whatever it is, or have a nighttime product. You can cultivate them in different ways to produce different levels of these active molecules. And another thing, cannabis is so highly regulated and so highly tested that when we think of like um, mold or some other pathogens that might be present in the cannabis, there's such a small threshold that there's almost none present in the cannabis that you purchase at dispensaries. It is more highly regulated than the groceries you buy at the grocery store that you're consuming every single day. It's very, very safe. It's tested so that consumers, when they buy that product, can read the label and figure out exactly what percentage of active ingredients are there. They can start to learn what products work best with their body. And they can start to, it's really a personalized medicine because you have the options and the control to work around different consumption methods, different levels of active ingredients. And it really is not simple. It's not simple like a pharmaceutical that's like, hey, I need to take this pill once a day and you'll feel better. But I think that's part of the the power that people like is they feel like they're in control of their medicine. They're utilizing nature. I mean, we we are nature and we are complex nature taking in other complex natural products. And it's this very beautiful synergy. And I think it's really making people feel empowered to take back their medicine and and feel better from a natural product rather than, you know, just stacking the pharmaceuticals right. until something happens. Right. And I, 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 we had a conversation previously. I, when uh, I was in California, um, I coaxed my husband to go into a cannabis dispensary with me and, um, you know, cause he was concerned. I'm very sensitive to alcohol. I'm really sensitive to drugs. So he was really scared that if I took something that, you know, it would not have a good impact on me. He's a physician, but we went in and I said to the woman, look, I want an edible. I don't want to get high. I don't want to fall asleep. I don't want to get paranoid. I just want to relax a little bit. And she said, I'm going to give you the low lowest dose here of an edible. I got watermelon. And um, it did exactly what she told me it would do. Um, my husband felt much more comfortable with me taking it after that. So um, that was... And that's a bud tender that has no medical degree, but it's somebody who has lived yeah. experience from taking in that product and has also talked to hundreds yeah. of different people taking those products and understood how that product works and can make valuable recommendations based on that experience. So yeah, I mean, the people working in the cannabis industry are passionate about this plant and they want to help mm-hmm. other people too. So shout out to all the bud tenders because they don't get appreciated enough for all the work that they do and the education that they decide to learn on their own time to better other people's lives. I I just intuitively knew that this woman knew what she was talking about. So Tim, you wanted to say something? Well, it was when Riley referenced, you know, the fact that you go into a grocery store and you buy stuff every day that is less regulated than cannabis. And and I think what our society, the reason why cannabis is more of interest and more utilized and more legal and but really what I think struck a chord, what she said is the fact that we are in this, you know, People want to buy organic. They want a clean, healthy eating. They want a clean environment. You know, I think people are tired of man-made pharmaceuticals that they don't know what's in it and they don't know how it's adversely affecting them when you can actually have a plant that you could literally grow yourself, yep. process yourself, and, inge- and imbibe yourself and be able to do self-care 
you know, and, and I know another bill that's going to come up in the house is, is a, um, you know, home grow for, for, uh, venicinal patients. Mm-hmm. We're missing the boat because I think people are much more savvy on how to live cleanly right. and would be more amenable to making their own medicine. And I think that's an important part of this conversation that also gets left out is, you know, everybody always thinks it's, it's one of two things. It's like, hey, you just want to have it because you want to get high or, hey, you want to be in the industry because you want to make money. I want to have people be able to have a good life. And, and I can tell you as a 59-year-old male that's very physically active, cannabis helps me with my back issues and my legs. You know, anytime I do hiking, yard work, then, and the next day I'm all tight. Right. I never thought of using it for that. That's a good idea. Yeah. Use it for everything. Yeah, I'm a hiker. That's and, uh, great. You know, yeah. it's not even a lot. You know, one, yeah. one, two puffs, a half a gummy. You know, they'll have to take a lot. Yeah. It's it, but yeah. it. That's an important part that I think when we are teaching our young people about embracing the environment and living cleanly and living healthier, is sometimes medicines that are grown naturally that can be processed naturally are a better alternative than anything that you can buy on a shelf or that you have to get a prescription for. Right. And, and helping us old timers as well. And we're seeing a transition, at least in my generation, away from binge drinking and more towards the cannabis and psychedelics, more of these kind of just safer. Right. I'm going right. to say that. I mean, alcohol is essentially micro poisoning yourself. There's there's really no good use of alcohol, whereas these other medicines, there is a lot of therapeutic value in them. And we're finally starting to understand that there are other options. We don't need to do that all the time. And we we want to utilize natural products in the best way we can. And regardless of the legal landscape, we're still going to do it um, in this state and in any state. So if we can... If we can have avenues to safe, accessible products, that would be amazing. But if not, as Tim's saying, we're going to go to Massachusetts. We're going to go to Vermont. We're going to go to Maine. We just did street interviews in Manchester, New Hampshire, a few members of the NHCAN um, advisory board. And multiple people we talked to are either already home growing by themselves. Yeah. You know, they just are quiet about it. Or they just go to Massachusetts every weekend and spend $200 on weed and then right. come back. It's not like the prohibition here is stopping people from using cannabis. It's just making it a little more difficult for us to get these products. And harming our and harming our economy. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I've got two more questions for you. I mean, it looks like for folks who don't know, for my listeners who don't know, it looks like the Liquor Commission is going to be overseeing cannabis, whether we pass it this year or not, and that there is likely going to be a, a franchise system. What is your thought about that? Good thing? Bad thing? Um, I'll start by just saying um, a big component of cannabis for me is the culture aspect. If you look back, um, a lot of people in our community don't really trust the state or the federal government because they've been incarcerating our community for decades. So to me, having the state overstepping to that degree, I mean, it's better than a state run model. But still, I am worried we're going to lose a lot of the cultural components of cannabis. Because if you go to other states, if you go to Maine, if you go to Massachusetts, you can walk into one dispensary and it might be a very like sterile, medical, you know, very clean type of vibe. And then you go right down the street and it might be a very like woodsy and earthy and different. And then everyone's a little bit different and it attracts different communities of people. And you can you can kind of get to know people based on that community aspect. 
I am a little afraid we're going to lose that community, that culture uh, with the franchise model. I think a lot of people in the cannabis community have already left New Hampshire because we don't really uh, trust what's going to happen here if we do have a legal landscape. So I'm always um, I'm pro having the individual business owners be able to create that culture separate uh, from the state. But at the same time, I understand like we 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 need to get something going um, in the state, and it is slightly better than the state run model. But I think we could do a lot better. Tim, what do you think? Yeah, and I'll I'll sort of take that to the next level. You know, from a business person's point of view, a business likes to have originality, and customers like to go to a business that they connect with. And Riley referenced that. So when you begin to homogenize it, when you begin to franchise it, you know, I, I like a hamburger, but I don't go buy my hamburgers at McDonald's and Burger King because everything's just sort of feels and tastes the same and it's sort of generic. You want to go to someplace that has some originality. I think as well, uh, what I think it hurts in this model is the relationships that customers build with bud tenders or, or cannabis consultants, you know, that they are learned folks. I worry about you know, the mantra being, how can I help you? It changes to, do you want paper or plastic? You know, that a franchise model is going to take the personalities <laughs> out of it that can help, yeah, that can help yeah. the customers, you know, the wisdom that you want when you go in and say, here's how I'm feeling, or here's how I want to feel. I think the other part that is uh, really hard, um, and this comes from sort of my, you know, industry background, how are we going to help these businesses advertise? If the state's going to control the advertising, is there going to have to be cooperative advertising? Am I going to have to throw in? What if I don't have a lot of revenue, you know, and I want to bootstrap my advertising and I DIY it? And that's, you know, what a small vintage shop does or a small bakery does, but they don't have the money for right. it. Are they going to be forced to be buying? And then wh what kind of advertising controls are going to have on it? The, the, this is an important point that, I, that I've been trying to make to this commission because the state with the strictest advertising laws in the cannabis industry is the state of Vermont. And they too quite well because they're independently run single entity owner cannabis shop owners. It's the craft cannabis logic that Riley was talking about. And there's that level of personality and, and connection that someone has with their dispensary in Jericho, Vermont or Burlington or, or, you know, in, in somewhere else, uh, right. some other part of the state that you, that fits your neighborhood. And I think the homogenization, the franchise might turn people off. You know, it's, it's probably going to become the, oh, I can go and I can go get something in there like convenience. It's like going to the, con you know, the convenience store, but it's not going to the place that you enjoy spending time in and feel trusted. in. Right. And I think right. in the cannabis culture, trust is a huge issue. Being able to feel comfortable with what am I buying? Who am I buying it from? And do they really, you know, represent their product well? So I'm worried about that from that structure, from that kind of way that it's going to hold back economic development. Yeah, I was I, I was just going to say that um, if I were an entrepreneur in this business, I would not want to go go into business under that structure. No, I would feel very um, constrained. Um, I'm a I'm a marketer, and I, I'd want to do it how I want to do it. I have always wanted to open a dispensary in New Hampshire. And after seeing this model, I no longer have that dream here. Like maybe maybe in Maine, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. But also we can see success stories and failure stories of this from the current cannabis industry. A success story that I think of in New York City, there's a, a brand called Happy Monkey. 
I don't know if you ever heard of them. They're actually quite big now, but they were a legacy operator. They were selling the, you know, quote, black market. And they grew this huge following, a lot of trust, a lot of culture from that community. And just recently, they decided to get into the legal market. And they are doing so well compared to other brands because they built that trust and they maintain that culture. And they still have these events that like really just build up the community. And I went to one of their events last year. It was absolutely amazing. And in contrast, you have the large multi-state operators, the MSOs, that are losing money like crazy because they're not, they have no component of culture. They have no component of, you know, community and trust. They're just trying to make as much money as possible. And a lot of them are, are going out of business while these other people who try to maintain that community are doing really well. So I think New Hampshire really needs to look at at brands and companies that are doing well if we want a sustainable industry in this state. Well said. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. I, I think this was a great conversation. Um, I really appreciate your being here. I think it's going to be interesting to see if we pass it this year or not. I think there would be some benefits if we don't pass it this year um, in terms of changing the structure uh, out of the franchise system, but we'll see what happens. So I thank you both so much. I thought this was just such an interesting conversation and we'll keep everybody updated on uh, what happens in the legislature this year with cannabis. And I hope to be able to smoke or do edibles with you both sometime in the near future legally. You know, Anita, I, I think what I want to end with is that just the fact that you're doing this is really important, that a legislator is creating a conversation around this topic, and we need to do more of this. And I really appreciate you bringing us on to do that. Thank you so much. Again, thanks. Thank you, Anita. This week's Putts of the Week Award goes to New Hampshire lawmakers for putting forth not one, but two circumcision bills. Now, there are 12,000 Jews and Muslims in the state of New Hampshire, and I'm pretty sure that these bills would violate New Hampshire's Bill of Rights. Are we now licensed physicians? Because I don't recall getting my medical degree. Let's get out of the operating rooms, let's get out of the doctor's offices, and let's get back to the state house. And may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Digging In. I want to thank Tim Egan of the New Hampshire Association of Cannabis and Dr. Riley Kirk for joining me. For my next episode, I'll be joined by former state Senator Gene Deitch, who is also the founder of Granite State Matters, which is dedicated to curbing extremism in New Hampshire politics. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Digging In wherever you get your podcasts. I would also appreciate your spreading the word about this podcast to your friends and on social media. 